Well, hello, good to see you all. And uh, welcome to Emmanuel Anglican. <clears throat> for those of you who are visiting and um, for those of you uh, new to the church, we're in a series going through 1 Peter. And the name of the series is Resilient Faith in Urban Soil. Resilient Faith in Urban Soil. What does it mean to follow Jesus in the city of Chicago? And uh, not only to survive in our faith, but actually for our faith to thrive, for our roots to go deeper, for our fruit to be sweeter as a result of following Jesus in the midst of a city with a lot of different competing truth claims and uh, where, where it's in some cases more difficult to follow Jesus than in other places. So um, the beginning of 1 Peter is really focused on identity. What does it mean that we are the people of God? And um, who are we? Peter talks a lot about, hey, you're, you're God's own possession. You're his holy priesthood. Um, you, you're a holy nation. You're, you're called to live out this, this, uh, this beautiful identity in the city. And um, in the middle part of the book, the focus then begins to shift to, okay, then how do you live that identity out? For the first readers of 1 Peter, it was how do you live out this identity of being God's own possession in Asia Minor, where they were exiled. For us, how do we live out our identity as God's um, holy people, as God's chosen nation, chosen nation, as a people of his own possession? How do we live that out with our Chicago friends, neighbors, coworkers? And um, one of the first problems that Peter addresses pastorally as we live out this identity is how do you live out that identity with people who are criticizing you, which is super tough. Uh, how do you live out the identity of God's chosen people as God's holy nation when as a result of what you believe, you are criticized for, for your faith? You're criticized for identifying with a suffering servant. You're criticized uh, for the theology that you hold, for the life that you lead. The first Christians were, were, were criticized as like, you're rebels. You're rebels of Rome. You're, you're, you're sowing seeds of discord here in the Roman Empire by following this superstition of a crucified Messiah. And so Peter's like, how we, how, this is a really important thing. One of the first things that Peter talks about is, how do you live out your faith? Um, how do you live out your identity with personal criticism coming your way? And in many cases, because you're doing the right thing and because you believe what's true. I know of a leader who was given charge of an organization some time ago, and as he uh, surveyed the landscape of the organization he was leading, he noticed there was a very unhealthy dynamic. There's a very unhealthy power dynamic, and it was leading to some bad situations. And so this leader, as leaders do, they stepped into that unhealthy situation and addressed it and renegotiated who was in charge of what, and uh, as a result... These, uh, the people who lost out on that transaction, the people who were part of the unhealth, they, uh, what they decided to do, and this was before social media, they decided to organize a campaign, of uh, a smear campaign, saying untrue things about the leader, not only him, but also his kids, written in a letter, sent out, they got a hold of the mailing list, sent it out to everyone on the mailing list. And so how is this leader going to respond? You know, we all have uh, situations like this. Maybe for you, it's, it's more than a sermon illustration, it's more than an you know, just a, a possible idea. You're living through this. Some of you are getting criticized for doing the right thing. Some of you are getting criticized, um, and the criticism isn't true at all. It isn't accurate at all. And yet, uh, there are people responding to you. There are people gossiping about you. It's not true. And it's one of the most painful things that we could ever go through. Peter, uh, uh, in verse 12 of 
1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, um, he says this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, when they speak against you as evildoers, here's a peaceful group of people, they're trying to figure out how to follow Jesus in a strange country, and they're being spoken against as evildoers. Verse 11, Peter says, uh, he's urging them to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So um, there's a couple different meanings to this. One of the dimensions of uh, passions which wage war against your soul is getting involved in retaliatory behavior when you are criticized. That is soul-destroying not only for the person that you're that you're retaliating against, but also to your own soul. Peter's like, no, do not get caught in the trap of retaliation. There's no end unless God intervenes. So it's super tempting for us when we're actually living through criticism, and especially when we're being criticized for doing the right thing, to retaliate, to spin, to use either directly or indirectly uh, means to tear the other person down. Peter wants to give us a better way. He's going to pastor us through situations in our life, whether we're going through them now or we're going to go through them in this week or later on in our life. How do we deal with unfair criticism? This is an essential point, an essential uh, thing to work through for resilient faith in urban soil. The first uh, pathway that Peter's going to show us is that of honorable conduct. Honorable conduct. Verse 12 again, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So notice that Peter is not calling them to a privatized faith. He's not calling them to flight of like, oh, people who don't follow Jesus are criticizing you for your beliefs. Well, just hide in your living rooms, go to your private spaces don't engage them and seal yourself off from the world. Don't you see? He says, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they see your good deeds, they'll glorify God. There's an interchange here where their faith is being lived out in a public way. The faith is being lived out so that it's like the Gentiles can see it in their everyday life and how they treat their kids and how they treat their coworkers and how they conduct themselves um, as they go about in Asia Minor. This is public life. For public consumption, faith is, faith is meant to be displayed for the life of the world. So it's not flight, it's not fight either. Peter has said um, good deeds, not nasty ones. Um, so he's calling them to honorable conduct. Honorable conduct, we might define it this way. Honorable conduct is to show respect and appreciation for people whenever possible. Honorable conduct is to show respect and appreciation for people whenever possible. Honorable conduct assumes and appreciates the best in others. Instead of, instead of scanning for weaknesses, scanning for faults to criticize, honorable conduct begins by scanning for things to appreciate, scanning for ways people are serving. And so when we're criticized, the, the temptation is for us to scan for the weaknesses in our critics and to attack them for it. Um, what Peter is calling us to is in response to unkind words, you are called as followers of Jesus to honorable conduct. What does that look like? Verse 13 and 14 give us uh, some specifics. Be subject, he says in verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. 
whether it be to the governor as supreme or to, uh, or to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. So one of the ways that we exhibit honorable conduct in the city of Chicago is by obeying the laws and the leaders of our native city, obeying the laws and the leaders of our native city. It doesn't mean they're perfect. Um, it doesn't mean that you voted for them. It doesn't mean that, uh, that you, might, you might vehemently disagree with their policies. But honorable conduct is for the Lord's sake to obey those in authority if conscience allows. You are treating the leaders as made in God's image, even if they don't see themselves or you in that way. Honorable conduct sees leaders as made in God's image, even if they're corrupt. It's also when you treat them honorably, when you subject yourselves to them as unto the Lord, you are also showing dignity and respect for yourself. Um, what's interesting is that Peter notices, he, he calls out what governors are doing right, okay? The governors, like, this is not the Roman emperor. These are the people who work for the Roman emperor in the different parts of the Roman empire, the governors. They enforce justice. They punish those who do evil, and they praise those who do good. Now, what happens if you have governors who don't do that anymore? Society breaks down, becomes anarchy. There's something good about what these governors were doing, even if some of what they were doing was unjust. And Peter is calling uh, the readers to honor the governors for what they're doing right. Here's a modern-day example of how this can play out in the city of Chicago. Anyone here got a parking ticket before? Okay, how does it feel? Feels awful. Feels like this is so, the city hates my car and hates me and wants me to pay. The prices are steep. The tickets come swiftly. It's not fair. And you know what? To a certain extent, maybe it isn't fair, okay? Um, but think about those meter maids writing tickets. What happens if they stop doing their job? What happens if they stop punishing people who do not evil, but more like, you know, sketchy parking situations? We have total chaos in our city with parking, don't we? We have people double parking. I might double park if there was no tickets being written. You might double park if there was no tickets being written. There'd be a, uh, some disorder on the streets, on a small scale maybe, but some disorder nonetheless. So my friend and I, we live in different cities, but we each have our parking anger. And um, we talked about how, you know what, let's start thanking the meter maids for doing their jobs. Because what if they didn't do their jobs? Let's start thanking the meter maids. One time I was running past a meter maid at night. I was on a run, and I just, I felt a nudge. Hey, you know what, why don't you stop and thank this lady for the job that she's doing? And so I did. I, I stopped, and I was like, hey, I just wanted to say I'm not here to get in your grill. And she thought I was. She thought I was going to yell at her. Because that's what happens to her all the time. And I said, I just want to say, thank you for doing your job. If you didn't do your job, we'd have parking chaos all over the place. And she was like, thank you for thanking me. No one has ever thanked me. No one has ever thanked me for doing my job. Is there a way that you can honor leaders, officials, teachers, people who serve you? It doesn't mean they're perfect. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that they don't have sin. Uh, it just means that you're seeing the good and you're appreciating it. That's what it means to honor, treating people as made in God's image. 
But this is the will of God, Peter says, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Roman citizens had a lot of misconceptions about Christians. And you know, people in our culture have some misconceptions about Christians. For good reason, they've seen bad examples of people living out the Christian faith. People claiming Christ, but then acting very dishonorably. And one of the, one of the healing things for them, one of the really important ways that they move from um, suspicion of Christians to glorifying God is your lived example and my lived example of honorable behavior. Yes, we might be unfairly criticized for being Christians or, or something else, but God's call in our life is to, in the city, live lives of honorable conduct whenever possible so that people can see, that people pay attention more to our actions than they do to our words. We just instinctively watch people's lives more than we pay attention to what they say. Um, so one question we can ask when we're criticized is, how can I show honor to the person who is criticizing me? How can I show honor to the person who is criticizing me, gossiping about me? Live as people who are free, Peter says, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. We're God's people, free to show honor to everybody, free to believe the best. We are free to sow seeds of grace in our city when we are unfairly critiqued. So let's live as people who are free through honorable behavior, honorable conduct. Second uh, pathway Peter shows us is grace-filled endurance. Grace-filled endurance. Anyone here ever run a marathon or watch people run a marathon? Um, I've noticed there's a new piece of equipment that's being worn by marathon runners, and it's the hydration backpack. You know the hydration backpack? It's, it's a backpack, but there's water in it. And uh, the water is strapped to your back, and there's a little tube that you can drink from. You can drink from the backpack. Sounds gross, but it works. And uh, what happens is that as you're running the marathon, if there's not, a, if there's not like a water station, you just... You keep going. The most, one of the most important resources you need to cross the finish line is water. You get dehydrated running. And if you get dehydrated, that's a threat to your health. And also, it's a threat to you finishing the race at all. So you need a hydration backpack. Some of you know this because you've endured unfair criticism. You've been gossiped about. You've been maligned. And you know that it's very difficult to endure. It's very difficult to endure that kind of a, that kind of a trial. It drains your energy. And so what Peter is calling us to is to strap on that hydration backpack of the grace of God so that even as we are going through the trial, we have God's grace accessible to us every step of the way. One theologian has a really helpful definition of grace. He says, grace is God acting in our life to do what we cannot do on our own. Grace is God acting in our life to do what we cannot do on our own. Grace is what we live by, and the human system, like water, won't work without it. We need God's grace to live by. Um, so uh, Peter says in verse 18, he gives an example of what this would look like. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now let's stop there. This text is not a license to enslave people. You might read this text and go, you know what, this is why I don't tr trust Christianity because the Bible condones slavery. The Bible does not condone slavery whatsoever. The slavery, the chattel slavery system in the United States was evil and unbiblical for two reasons. Number one, because of its permanence. 
and there's no volition. There was a forced slavery that was permanent and crossed the line of the human will. There was no choice in the matter. The second reason it was evil is because it was based on race. And for both of those reasons, if you had a biblical worldview, um, from the very beginning, you have opposed slavery and preached on it. And it's a disgrace that the Christian church did not always do this. Here's where there are differences between the Roman slave class, not slave class, servant class, better stated, and U.S. slavery. The Roman servant class was much closer to the ROTC program in its structure. Uh, that's the closest equivalent we have in our day, where you know the government pays for your education. And then in, re- in return, you're serving the government, you're serving the military, or whatever other institution, private or public, has bought your education, you then serve them. You still get a wage, and in certain sense, you still get a choice in the matter. If you want to pay off your education, you pay them, and then you can work for whoever you want to work for. But until your time is up, you're serving the military. You're serving the institution. That's the closest parallel that we have to the Roman servant class. Servants would serve something called the paterfamilias. It was this sort of, it was a, it was a home and an economy all in one, overseen by the kind of the, the father of the family, And you had family, and then you had servants who joined the family voluntarily, and they were paid for their labors. Uh, So, uh, but some of these employees of these systems, of these paterfamilias, some some of the people who oversaw them were, as you can imagine, corrupt and unjust. Just like we have unjust employment today, crooked bosses today, there were crooked bosses then too. The word for unjust is literally translated crooked. They were cooking the books, Um, and Peter is calling them to respect them, even though they are crooked. Verse 19, this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Mindful of God, mindful of God. This is a conscious awareness of the grace and presence of God in our life while we are enduring injustice and unjust criticism. Um, It's uh, the grace that he gives us to fulfill his call, to speak kind words in response to unkind words, to tell the truth in response to lies. The leader I referenced earlier that had uh, this sort of group of people attacking him and his family, he showed me his Bible that he would use in this year and beyond this year of criticism. He showed me the Psalms where he spent a lot of his time marinating, a lot of his time taking his, his, uh, his anger to God, his sense of injustice to God, and also receiving God's grace. It was like his hydration backpack of when he would be unjustly criticized and it was wanting to give up, wanting to leave, wanting to, to, to lash out. Mindful of God, he went to the Psalms and said, God, I know that your grace is with me. I know that your power is with me. I need to express my, my anger to you, my sadness to you, and receive your life in response through the Psalms. Um, For what credit is it, Peter says, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. It's a grace-filled situation in the sight of God. Don't you see we're mindful of God as we're enduring uh, unjust situations? Our, Our eyes are looking at him, but then his eyes are looking at us. We're like making eye contact right in the middle of the trial that we're going through. This is the way God wants it. This is what he intends for us. 
In this world, you will have, tr- you will have trouble, but, but I'll give you my peace. That's what the good shepherd says this morning. And for those of you going through a trial, the good shepherd says to you, hey, look, look at me in the eyes. I'm your good shepherd. I'm your overseer, which leads to the third point here, the third pathway. It's not just, uh, it's not just honorable conduct, um, and it's not just grace-filled endurance. It's also and fundamentally union with Christ, living into our union with Christ. Um, unfair criticism, gossip, character assassination makes us feel alone. We can get tunnel vision. If you've ever been through unfair, you can get tunnel vision when you are criticized. You can feel alone and isolated. Peter holds up the, the jewel of union with Christ and shows us all the different facets of it. He says, look at, look at how Jesus has died for you and suffered for you. Look at how Jesus has given you an example. Look at... Look at all the different things that he did. Look at how he's called you to this trial. He helps us see how beautifully intertwined our life is with Christ's. Verse 21, for to this you have been called. What a mystery here. To this, to this trial, to this criticism, uh, to this situation of injustice, you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Well, what were those steps? Verse 22, when he, uh, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. What does that mean? When Jesus was standing before Pilate, his, he's standing there before Pilate, he's standing there before the Jewish authorities, and they're bringing all level of unjust criticism to him, and he doesn't lie. He doesn't manipulate. If you're tempted to use your words to manipulate people, to make it seem, to cast yourself in the light you feel you deserve, Jesus didn't do that. He, as his teaching went, he let his yes be yes and his no be no. He told the truth. He told the truth, and he did not manipulate directly or indirectly. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He didn't fire back. He didn't, he didn't get his dig in. He entrusted the justice of the situation to the Father. He knew that the Father would look on Jesus' life and declare the ultimate justice on his reputation. And he bore our sins in his body. You know, the thing is that we have all retaliated. We have all let ugly words come out of our mouth. We have all defended ourselves. We have all deceived. And Jesus bore that on the cross. He took that into himself and he put it to death so that we could put it to death and live to righteousness. He gave us his righteousness in response. And then verse 25, we were straying like sheep, but we've returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. He oversees our souls. He's the shepherd of our souls. We can trust the shepherd with our reputation. This leader that I've been speaking of throughout the sermon, he um, you know, asked the Lord, what do you want me to do in this situation? My kids are being attacked. My reputation's being attacked. It's all my first year on this job. What do you want me to do? And, and, the, and the leadership that he got from the Lord, what the, he sensed the Holy Spirit was saying was, let me protect your reputation. You can, you can just leave that to me. He didn't retaliate. He didn't, he didn't try to defend himself. And what that did was that set up two things. The first thing it set up was there, there was a group of people who left this organization after one year in mass. The people who remained looked to the leader and said, we've seen your honorable conduct. We trust you now 
to lead us. And uh, in fact, teach us what, what you did. Teach us peacemaking. Teach us how to follow Jesus with our own conflicts. The second thing that it did was there was, a, there was a group of the people who left who came back and said, we feel total conviction from the Holy Spirit to seek your forgiveness. Would you forgive us? We were wrong to do what we did. We were wrong to attack your kids. Would you forgive us? Not everyone came back, but a lot of them did. And there was reconciliation. When we're united with Christ, we have that access. We can say, Jesus, you're living your life through me. What do you want me to do? Maybe it's a Matthew 18 situation where we go to someone who is assassinating our character, someone who's talking about us, and we say, hey, please stop it. We bring someone with us. When you're living in your union with Christ, he will walk through any situation, any unjust criticism, and God will protect our reputations, but more than that, he will glorify his own. Notice that when Peter, the pastor, talks at the beginning of this passage, he says, um, um, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? To start a revolution? That might happen, but that's not the goal. Uh, to defend yourself? No. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Glorify God on the day of visitation. Our call when we live the way of Jesus here in Chicago, though it is painful, though we don't always see how it's always going to turn out, we are doing this for the glory of God. And in the final day, in the day of visitation, we will see how just how much our good shepherd was empowering us, protecting us, living his life through us. This is available to us. The character and the teaching we see in Jesus as he's going to the cross and through the cross is available to every last one of us, no matter what we're facing here as we follow Jesus in the city of Chicago. So let's follow him with all of our hearts, and let's watch our neighbors and friends glorify God when the time is right on the day of visitation. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.